We're going to be reading from the sword of the spirit right now. So if you have your Bible, open it, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 9, verse 30, through all of chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Israel says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voices have gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Israel is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, please be with us as we go through this very beautiful passage today. Please help us listen and be freed 
from our feelings and our preconceived ideas. Lord, be with us as we listen. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Awesome. Evan, can I get some lights, please? Thank you, sir. You are the man. I, you know, this is, how, this is one of the reasons I love God. He is the only person that calls my feet beautiful. You know what I mean? It's good. Hey, it's, it's good for you guys to be in here with us this morning as we are continuing to go through the book of Romans uh, together. Uh, we also have our elementary age children in this service and the next, and we do that really intentionally as a church because we want your children to worship with people that are older than them, and we need to learn how to worship from you kids. I mean, Jesus says if we don't come to, if we don't come to him like you come to him, then we're coming to him the wrong way. So we need you. You need us. It's going to be beautiful. They're going to be coloring. They may be squirming around a little bit. It doesn't bother me. Hope it doesn't bother you. All right? Everybody get it? Got it. Good. Let's go. Uh, Romans 10 uh, is great. So last week, we, we packed this really significant, uh, uh, unpacked this really significant passage of Scripture that talked about uh, a significant part of the mystery of salvation. And we talked about God's sovereignty in salvation. Uh, we, we said our goal last week uh, when we walked in is that we're going to feel smaller when we leave today because we're going to see that God is actually bigger than we intended, uh, than we ever intended that he was. And so, uh, and I, I don't know about you, but I felt that way when I left last week. I felt just a little smaller than when I walked in, and that was a good place for me to be. Now, this week is kind of the other side of the coin. It's the mystery of salvation part two where we're talking about what is our responsibility uh, in salvation? What has God called us to do as disciples? How are we supposed to respond to what God's done? Well, we're supposed to obey the gospel and extend it to the world is what Romans 10 says. So what is the call of the gospel on your life today? I mean, what do you functionally believe God has put you in this world, in his kingdom, to do? Are you clear on that? Or do you wonder what it would look like to make your life really count for the kingdom of God? I wonder that often, and I pray that you do too. Here's what I, here's what I see, is that our priorities reveal our convictions. I mean, I think the tendency is to think that if we could just change our behaviors, you know, starting from the outside, maybe our heart would follow that. <clears throat> you know, I should be more disciplined. I need to add more of the good stuff to my life, eat better food, consume more wholesome media. But the systems of this world are all about promoting a duplicitous life. Having behaviors that reflect the convictions that you wish to have, not that you actually have. But the reality is our lives are set up to reflect what we actually believe. The content of our conversations reveals what is actually coming from our heart. Our calendars are set up to reflect what we actually believe to be most important in our lives. Our bank accounts reflect what we actually think is worthy to us. So when it comes to living an obedient life in the gospel, it all starts with the message of what we actually are believing in our hearts. And then the mission will follow suit. I love what James K.A. Smith writes in his book, You Are What You Love. It's a great book if you haven't read it before. He says this, your deepest desire is the one that is manifested by your daily habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which are the habits that we've acquired through practices we're immersed in. This means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. 
Christian worship faces this disturbing reality head on. This is what we're doing today. Recognizing the gap of what we think we love and what we really love. So this is where your life mission is stemming from. Whatever you consider to be most important, whatever you wake up in the morning thinking about pursuing, it all is stemming from what you love. And a lot of times we think about the Christian mission, what God has called us to do, sharing the gospel, discipling people, going into all of the world, and we think, why am I not more missional? And it's because the message is off in our hearts. What we're believing is off. See, God will not have it where we just bolt on a fruitful missional life and be falling apart on the inside. And so today we've got to look at both sides of the coin. We've got to look at the, the, the clarity of the gospel in our hearts, the simplicity uh, of what it looks like to receive that clear gospel, and then the pure message of extending what we've received. So here's our big idea for today. A clear gospel message is what leads to a pure gospel mission. Say that with me. A clear gospel message is what leads to a pure gospel mission. All right, so we're going to dig in, and I just told you my three points if you're a note taker. We're going to talk about the clarity of the gospel, why that is so important to us. We're going to talk about the simplicity of responding in faith, and then we're going to talk about the mission that God has us all on. So let's dig into that first part here. We need a clear gospel. We're going to be looking at Romans 9.30 through 10.13 on this one. So if you go back to Romans 8, um, Romans 8 says this beautiful thing, uh, that, that if you believe in Jesus, there's no condemnation for your past sins and failures, and there's no separation from God's love in your life, no matter what happens. So it paints this picture for the church of one of intense and ferocious security in God. Most of the time, we are not faithful to the, the call of God on our life to extend the gospel because we are afraid. It's significant that Romans 8 comes before Romans 10, church. God wants us to see that he has made us intensely secure in his kingdom. So, so the, the fight of our lives... Uh, is not getting your unbelieving neighbor converted. The fight of our lives is a clear gospel message in our hearts. And most of the world's problems and most of the church's problems, the heresies that we faced in the past, have been because we've lost the fight for clarity in the gospel. Um, so last week, we looked at Romans 9, and, and, and just to kind of give you the context of what's going on between the Gentiles and Israel uh, here, I need to remind you of that. Romans 9 reminds us that God chooses and orchestrates who will respond to the gospel call? That's not our job. That's God's job. Um, that is who will actually see the good news as their good news. Now, it's a tough and it's a comforting passage that makes us feel small. This week is about how we are called to respond to that message. So here's what's happening. God's chosen people, the Jews, have been entrusted with all the promises of God. That's what Romans 9 teaches us. But for the most part, they have rejected the Messiah, that they were waiting for because he didn't look the part. He spent time with really sinful people, and he died a really weak and pitiful death on the behalf of sinners on the cross. But the craziest thing is happening in the kingdom of God at this time when Paul writes this. Gentiles, people who have never even sought to follow the one true God, are coming into the kingdom in droves because of who Jesus is. So the argument against the Gentiles is this. They haven't even tried to obey God's word. At least I've tried, God, the Jews say. How can you let them in? And that's where we pick up in Romans 9.30. I'm going to just piece it out a little bit as we walk through it here. 
So Paul says, what should we say then? The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it. And this is a, is a different kind of righteousness because it's a righteousness by faith, is what Paul says. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. And why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So what we see here is that everyone's looking for righteousness. It's not just the Jews. It's not just the, the, the Gentiles were looking for righteousness too. And what is righteousness? It's being made right with God for all of time. Always doing the right thing and never doing the wrong thing. It, you know, everybody wants to be, I mean, rather, rather, let me say it in the negative. No one wants to be invalidated. No one wants to be wrong in God's sight and not enough for their creator. Even an atheistic person may front with that kind of an attitude, but deep in their heart, they want to be whole with God. And so Paul says the problem with the Jews and Jesus is that they saw the law as something that they had to accomplish in their own might. They saw it as a ladder. If I can always obey all of God's word, then I will be enough. I will be righteous. But then these Gentiles come trouncing in and they say, I believe Jesus did what he said he did, and it was on my behalf. And they're the ones that are in right standing with God because they believe on it by faith. But the people who look the part tend to trust their part a little too much, is what Paul is saying here. That they could never be in right standing by works, but only by faith. Paul has been beating this into our hearts, you know, for 10 chapters now. So he picks up in Romans 9.32. It says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. He's quoting Isaiah here. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion, the city of God, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he goes on to talk about his own heart for the Jewish people. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a, and this is key, they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. In other words, you can be the hype man for the wrong thing, right? That's what he's saying here. You can be really excited and it not be based on truth. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteous, righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Church, God's righteousness is something that we must submit to uh, before we're ever going to live a righteous life. It's something that is done for you Instead, instead of uh, before it's ever something that's done by you, is what Paul's saying here. And he says, um, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In, in other words, trying to be righteous on your own, Christ is the end of that way of living to everyone who believes. For Moses, who wrote the Ten Commandments, writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commands has to live by them. So, what we see is that the way of faith is offensive to the way of works. People that walk by grace through faith offend legalistic people who want to base their life on works. If you've lived any time in the church, you've seen this happen. It's always been the case. The way of faith is that you believe in someone else, Jesus' righteousness, in your place. And this way of living is so offensive to people who believe that they can do it on their own. It's so frustrating. If you've ever been in the presence of someone who has all of the answers and no questions, and you tend to be a curious person who doesn't mind a bit of mystery, as this is all 
working out, your way of living, whether you know this or not, is extremely offensive. Because Christ is a stumbling stone to the way of works. And so the Jewish people, for the most part, have stumbled over the gospel. Now, there are some Messianic Jews who have converted to Christianity. They've seen Jesus as the Messiah. But for the most part, Paul's saying, they are furious with Jesus. And the craziest thing about this is it was under their nose the entire time. The book of Isaiah was written at least 700 years before Jesus ever graced the planet with his life. And and the quote is, hey guys, it's coming. You're going to reject him. You're going to stumble over him. You're going to be offended by him. So that knowledge wasn't all that they needed. They actually needed faith that Jesus was the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. And so when you reject the righteousness that Jesus has won for his people because of his perfect life on our behalf, you are forced to attempt to establish a righteousness of your own. Each and every one of us in this room are pursuing righteousness. But you're only ever actually going to be righteous if you submit to God's righteousness on your behalf through Jesus. That's the key to this whole thing. There is no remaining neutral. We are all fighting for our own versions of rightness with God in this world. But because of what Jesus has done for us, the path to trying to be righteous on our own is over, is what the scriptures are saying. Now, let, let me explain it in a, in a helpful way. I think it's helpful anyway. How many of you have ever ridden a roller coaster before? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. What's your favorite one on the count of three? One, two, three, go. Okay. I heard Goliath. You know what my... Yeah, you guys are a lot of fun, okay? I'm not taking you to Six Flags, geez. My favorite one is Millennium Force at Cedar Point. Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio, amazing. It's 310 feet tall. It looks uh, over Lake Michigan. It goes 93 miles an hour. It is bad to the bone. It's awesome. So I want you to imagine seeing this. Well, you don't have to imagine. Look at this roller coaster track right here, all right? So just imagine, imagine that you've never ridden a roller coaster before. You've never seen a roller coaster and how it works before. You just see the track, all right? And, uh, and you haven't seen the carts that go on them. You haven't seen the whole system that gets you up and sends you down and all that kind of stuff. And imagine that track right there is the law of God, all right? Um, and, 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 and the Bible says in the Old Testament, you have to obey if you want to be right with God. That's what Moses says. So what that means for you and I is that before Jesus came, to be made right with God, it's like this. We have to climb this track. We have to climb this track, and we have to try to do it perfectly. And, uh, and, and yeah, so this is like us right here before Jesus comes on the scene and offers us a different kind of righteousness. Now, how many of you think that you could climb the track, right? You would look at it, you'd see the rails that go up through it, and you'd, you'd kind of you'd climb up it like that. How many of us can obey all 613 laws in the Bible perfectly and never slip up and never yell at our little brother and never steal or have a lustful or prideful thought? Well, the thing is, when we first heard the law of God, we probably thought we could kind of get up it, right? And then we started climbing the first few rungs, and we started to realize this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be because I'm a sinful person. It doesn't take us very long to feel defeated and crushed by the climb of the law, does it? You see, what happens when you climb is you're either tempted to say, you know, 
it's really not that tall, or I can really make it a little further, and we can kind of change the tracks, or we can think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Well, the Bible promises that a Messiah will come and help make us right with God, that he will offer us a righteousness by faith. He will, climb, he will help us climb the tracks if we would just believe that God is going to carry us home and make us right with God. And let's just say that living by faith is like this. We realize that those tracks were never made for climbing in the first place, but they were made for what? Riding and gliding on, right? They were made for this. And while we were climbing on them, we thought we were getting along pretty far. But they were never made for that in the first place. God is going to give us a different source of strength and power than we ever imagined. And what it means to have a righteousness by faith, it means that we see Jesus as the front row cart, right? He's always in the front seat, and his Holy Spirit is the engine that pulls us to the top of those tracks, and he is our older brother that is leading the way of obeying each and every one of those laws, but we are riding along with them by the power of the Holy Spirit, church. And we don't do that perfectly, but that's what it's like to live by faith. The Jews are climbing, the Gentiles are riding, right? That's kind of the difference. That's kind of what it looks like for us. Now, the tracks haven't changed. The law of God hasn't changed because God cannot change. But what has changed? Us. We've changed. To receive the righteousness that God gives to us brings us home to himself It's to have the courage to actually believe the gospel. And what does the word gospel mean? The good news, right? Romans 10, 6 through 8 says this, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to go get Jesus for us. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to to bring Jesus up for us. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we Proclaim. So we no longer say, how far do I have to climb to get to God? But rather, we see how much he's done to get to us. He's so near that his word actually lives inside of us. And our source of obedience is his presence working in and through our lives. And that's the kind of clarity that the gospel requires. It seems so simple, but it is so hard to keep clear. Now, there are lots of different ways throughout history that the people of God have diluted the good news and climbed the roller coaster tracks. Amen? There's a lot of them. Some of you have been, we've all, we've all believed distorted gospels in our lives. In Paul's day in the church in Galatia, the Jewish believers were trying to get the new Gentile converts uh, to become circumcised. You know, sure, you've got the gospel, that's great, but let me add a few rungs of climbing the tracks for you guys, okay, just to make sure you're in. Here's how Paul responded. I want, you to, I want you to notice just kind of the tenacity of his response. And I think his tone ought to match our tone as we try to keep the gospel clear. Paul says this as he opens up this gentle letter to the Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a contrary gospel to the one you've received, 
let him be accursed. So what are the distortions? What are the delusions of our day? That's what it was in Galatia. What are the distortions of the gospel that swirl in your heart and also in your spheres of influence? What are the distortions of the gospel that I perpetuate with my own life? What are the ways that I try to add a construct to the way of faith that God does not have for us? For some of you, it's this legalistic mentality that's been ingrained in you from childhood. Unless you wear this or don't wear that, eat this or don't do that, participate in this or don't participate in that, you're not really a Christian. You might call yourself a Christian, but that's not really who you are. Friends, Jesus plus nothing equals everything in the Christian faith. That's the bottom line. And the fight might be for you to fight through that legalism to get to the purity of the message, but if you're not fighting to attain the clarity of the gospel, you are going to be perpetuating distortions of the gospel. That's just, you are, you're going to perpetuate what you actually believe. For some of us, we struggle with forgiveness. We are so hard on ourselves that we cannot live in the delight of God. And so what does that lead us to? To not forgive other people, to not seek to be reconciled to others. We have a hard time with that. Now, that's the bottom line. If you're in the cart with Jesus, his spirit will lead to your life becoming more and more obedient. You don't have to add a bunch of infrastructure to it to try to get you there. But God will not endorse or bless any form of track climbing for his children. He loves us way too much for that church. Let's keep going. So so clarity of the gospel is the first part of this. The the second part is this. We need a simple response. If it's a really clear message, the response is really clear. It's not not convoluted. It's clear. So when the gospel message has all these constructs that surround it, it can seem really complex to us. Even think about your life when you first became a believer, maybe the first time that you came to church. There, there, there are people in this room and in the second service, they're brand new Christians. They're just exploring this thing. There's a lot of weird stuff Christians do, okay? Can we just put it out there? A lot of strange things. A lot of strange language we use. Seems like this kind of insider thing. How much of that is actually like just the complexity that we've built onto the simple message of the gospel, right? You got to fight for it to be simple. You know, you think you have to jump through all these hoops and then maybe God will love me and show his grace and give me life. But the people that build these constructs around the gospel are typically religious people that lack a clear gospel understanding on their own. And they quickly turn the real gospel into a false gospel when that happens. A false gospel is really anything that's contrary to this passage I'm about to read, okay? So here's the really clear and simple response to the gospel that Jesus invites every single person in this room to receive right? Every single person. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so there's the first part, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Bottom line, believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth, you will be saved. Not when you get baptized, you'll be saved, right? I'm preaching now. Not, you know, not if you go to church this many times, you'll be saved. Not if you're in a discipleship group. Not if you serve the poor. If you believe in your heart and confess in your mouth, you will be saved. How beautiful is that? But how hard do we make it? He says, for with the heart one believes, they're justified, they're made right with God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You don't have to add all that stuff to your life because you think you're going to be put to shame. Instead, you can joyfully follow God and those things will flow into your life, right? 
He says, for there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. I know you guys think there's a lot of things going on here. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautiful promise for us. So if you're someone who struggles to believe that you're a Christian, that you're really eternally secure, I want to challenge you to commit these verses to memory. If you want to be blessed by God's word, you want to be sure of what he's done for you, do the work to commit this to memory and recite it to yourself every time you start to doubt. It doesn't matter how many times you confess your faith, how many times you've been baptized, how many times you walk down that aisle. What matters is belief in your heart. Then a mouth that professes what it believes. That's the chain of, react, the, the, the chain of actions there. This passage has saved many that I love from believing false gospels, including myself. Now, I don't know what lies about the gospel and salvation you've believed in your life, but a few months ago, God invited me, uh, God invited me into a situation in my neighborhood with some of our boys um, that could have been an absolute disaster uh, for, a, for a lifetime for some of these kids. See, the three boys in the neighborhood we're out around dusk playing in our yard as they always do. Our house is like the, the neighborhood house for all. I mean, there's, at any time there's 15 kids in my yard. It's great. It was by design. Most of the time it's great anyway. Um, and so they moved from talking about football to talking about faith, a natural kind of transition for them. I loved it. It was great. And the, the ages of the boys in the yard this time were 8 to 10 years old. And uh, my youngest son, Roman, uh, comes in. Uh, to the house, and he's visibly shaking. Something's going on. I'm like, man, y'all are talking about faith, and you're visibly shaking? What's going on? He says, Daddy, and he names the two other boys in the yard, and he says, one of them is saying that the other one is going to hell, and there's nothing he can do about it. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And so I slip on my shoes. I go out into the yard. As I begin to unpack the details, I realize that these children, one of these children had placed some constructs on the gospel that were not true, and they were surrounding race. Yeah, and I don't want you to just hear, oh, you know, racist kids in the neighborhood. But, but one, one minority, and my son's white, he's as white as they come, yeah, blonde hair, blue eyes. There's an Asian and African-American boy in our backyard, and they're playing. And one of them says that the other one, because of the color of his skin, is not going to heaven. There's nothing you can do about it. And I'm thinking, you have got to, this is happening at my house. You have got to be kidding me, right? And so what do I do? Get my phone out, ESV app, Romans 10.9. Hey, guys, read this for me. What's it say? If you believe, if you believe and you confess Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Now, I don't know where that young man learned to believe that lie, and I, I kind of wish I did because I would kind of go and approach somebody. But I know that it takes us being clear with the gospel and having the courage to even offer correction with these formidable youth or your friends or wherever the lies are being believed about the gospel. Because the purity of the mission of God is at stake for all of us. The clearer the gospel is, the easier it is to understand. And the easier it is to understand, the more accessible the benefits are believing to the world. The fight for Christians is to be so entrenched in the truth that the lies can't live in our midst. And it's when we fight to protect the clear gospel and choose to respond to that simple message that we are left with a pure mission to follow. Romans 10, 14 through 21. We're going to look at this now. So if someone were to ask you, what is your purpose as a Christian? What does it mean for you to be a Christian? What are you you about? What do you do? You might answer with this really clear answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
it asks this question. What is the chief end of man? And it's a really simple answer. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if someone were to go to the next step and ask you, what is the mission of Christians? What would you say? I think a lot of, I think a lot of churches and people would respond with secondary or tertiary priorities, to be honest. They would say things like feed and clothe the poor, alleviate poverty, stop injustice, like in my neighborhood, extend compassion, be good moral people. I mean, all of these things that Jesus cares about, right? He's, in fact, he says, if you do any of these things, you're, you, to the least of these, it's like you've done them to me. He cares about all of these things, so don't hear that that doesn't matter. But the primary mission of God's people is word and disciple-making focused ministry. We are a word-based faith. Matthew 28, go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the imperative. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, and don't forget I'm with you always to the end of the age. It is a word-based ministry that God has called us to. Jesus loves us so much that he has given us the most important mission in the world, to go and spread the good and clear gospel giving people an opportunity to respond by faith and be shaped by other believers in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the main thing God has brought you into the kingdom for. When we wake up each morning, and this is not the main mission we're on, we've experienced mission drift. Now, I get you might, you might be a manager at a company, you know, you might be an entrepreneur, you know, you might be a, a social uh, servant here in, in Lawrenceville. You, you might have a lot of different vocational callings. But your calling to be on God's mission, it doesn't matter what your vocation is, right? It's to make Jesus known through your life. So here's how the Bible says it looks for us. Romans 10, 14 through 17. How then will they call on whom they have not believed? How are they going to confess? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And you think, oh, we live in the South. Everybody's heard. You'd be surprised. They haven't heard a clear gospel. They might have heard a gospel. They haven't heard the clear gospel, though. There's a difference there. And how are they here without someone preaching, speaking, proclaiming the truth? Not just in a pulpit, but with your life. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, so here's how it works. Just let me make it real clear for us. God buries the treasure of his word deep inside of the hearts of his people. And we believe it and it gives us life and it starts to direct and inform all that we are and all that we do. But there's this learned behavior of Christians where the longer we follow Jesus, the more we tend to hoard the gospel. Do you know what a hoarder is? I had a friend send me some pictures of a hoarder's house this week, and, and it was unbelievable, okay? So imagine that spiritually for me, with, just for a second. You're just hoarding the gospel. It's getting all moldy. It's getting all clanky. You're, getting, you're starting to focus on the wrong things, this and that, these secondary, tertiary things. You hoard the gospel, and you don't give it away. It starts to rot inside of us, right? A gospel hoarder is someone who walks out of here walks into discipleship groups and missional communities and private devotional, and never shares what they're learning about God. That's what a gospel hoarder is. And our, our culture is full of them. The churches around Atlanta are full of them. And my prayer is that New City Church would never be 
known by this. You know what happens when this happens inside of us is that the zeal that we have from our first love of the gospel starts to wane. And the things that used to thrill our hearts, we're just dead to them. So instead of shaming one another, let's ask an honest question of ourselves. Last thing you need is another sermon that makes you feel guilty about not sharing the gospel. I'm not trying to do that. What do I really want God to do with my life? What would it mean for my life to count for eternity? And my prayer is that each and every one of you would see, would leave these new city worship gatherings and see this as a kingdom outpost that we're being sent every week. What if we as a church cared more about our sending capacity than our seating capacity, right? Wouldn't that be beautiful? What if we were known as a people who sent missionaries to the world that planted churches all around Atlanta? Guys, I saw a stat this week that blew my mind about church planting. And it was this right here. Oh, you got it for me, thanks. In 2014... Um, which is, you know, a while ago, nine years ago, in the, in the United States, 3,700 churches closed and 4,000 started. In 2019, which was before the pandemic that killed a lot of churches, 4,500 churches closed and 3,000 started. We have a massive problem with the advancement of the gospel. People don't want to preach. People don't want to lead. Why? Because it's offensive. You get misunderstood. You take a lot of shots. I'm praying that we would see Jesus so beautiful that we would start sending people. You know, one of the other things I realized in our church planning network meeting today is that most people who are called into vocational ministry are called before they get out of high school. Makes us think differently about our stewardship with young people in this church. I wish we had so many people that want to explore vocational ministry that we'd have to start an internship uh, program, and then the elders would have to try to figure out how to pay for it. I wish y'all would make that my problem this summer. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Have 10 kids be interns thinking about being pastors or church leaders? That'd be amazing. Missionaries? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? I don't know what your feet look like this morning. But may the Lord call them beautiful as you are sent from this place. Because we're always just one generation away from having a clear gospel. And that gives the opportunity for a simple response and paves the way for a pure mission. What is God calling you to today? Let's pray together. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.